I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Genistory. We agreed to do this, a podcast about genocide and the field of genocide studies. I'm your host, John, and joining us today is Stitchwitch and podcaster extraordinaire, Frankie Bradley. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I'm very excited to have you on for this uh, particular episode. Today, we're going to be shifting our focus away from pure history and diving into my favorite area of study, the critical analysis of historical themes in popular media, which is, <laughs> which is a lot of words to say. We're going to be talking about cartoons today. And to start us off, we're going to be talking about one of my very favorite cartoons and the one that inspired my first book, Avatar The Last Airbender. So first, we're just going to go through some just general information about the show. So Avatar The Last Airbender first aired on February 21st, 2005. It ran for 61 episodes, finishing with a two-hour TV movie on July 19th, 2008. The show is, in general, about the Avatar, uh, whose name is Aang, voice acted by Zachary Tyler who is the master of all four elements, earth, air, wind, and fire, right? The four classical elements of, like, antiquity. The Greeks had them, the Chinese had them, Hinduism added in aether, but it's, like, the same basic elements. And he needed to, or needs to, stop a war that's been raging for a hundred years after, right, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. We've all heard that before. But Aang was trapped in ice for a hundred years, so now this, like, 12-year-old boy has basically less than a calendar year to master all four elements and stop the ultimate evil from taking over the world. It's a it's a phenomenal show. I love it very, very much. It's got great voice actors like Zach Tyler, who did Aang, uh, Mae Whitman, who voiced Katara, uh, Jack DeSena, who uh, was Sokka and is also... Caleb in The Dragon Prince? Caleb? The main character in Dragon Prince. I'm not going to look it up. Don't at me. <laughs> um, I'm like, who are we talking about? I drove The Dragon Prince directly from my brain. That's entirely fair. It does have some problematic aspects that we might talk about in a later episode. But for now, we're just going to also mention Dante Bosco Everyone's favorite lost boy from Hook, who voiced Prince Zuko. Um, and I'm just going to give a special shout out to uh, a man named Mako, who was Uncle Iroh for a while, but passed away right before Tales from Ba Sing Se was voice acted. Or right after, around that time. It was uh, It's very, very sad. And then Uncle Iroh got a new voice actor about halfway through the show. Uh, one of the wonderful things about Avatar The Last Airbender and the things that I like most about it is how heavily it draws from real-world influences. It borrows extensively from uh, Asian art, mythology, and uh, real Asian cultures. Not modern so much, but a lot of uh, historical Chinese and 
Japanese cultures. So in Avatar The Last Airbender, there are the four main elements. Each one right, has its own bending style, and each of the martial arts that is used for these bending styles is drawn from real-world martial arts. And these are all right generalities. There's variation between individual airbenders and waterbenders and earthbenders and firebenders. But in general, airbending is a uh, style called bagua. Earthbending is hungar. Northern Shaolin uh, is what they use for firebending. And in general, tai chi for waterbending. A notable exception is the character Toph, who uses southern praying mantis style. But, you know... In general, those four martial arts styles are what are used for the bending in Avatar The Last Airbender. You get a lot of Imperial Japanese motifs in with the uh, firebenders. You get a lot of uh, Han Dynasty China for the Earth Kingdom, uh, especially in how their Earth King is represented. Waterbenders tend to have a lot Inuit motifs in there. They are, generally speaking, found on the north and south poles of the planet. They dress in furs. They tend to wear a lot of blues and whites. Interestingly, though, the boats that the waterbenders use more closely resemble Polynesian catamarans than they do anything that Inuit cultures tend to use. But that's just fun flavor right there. And airbenders pretty closely resemble the uh, saffron robes of Buddhist monks. Um, and each of the bending cultures tend to focus on specific colors of yellows and oranges for airbenders, greens and browns for earthbenders, blue for waterbenders, reds, blacks, and golds for firebenders. Uh, we could go on more and more about the cultural influences of Avatar, but then that would be this entire episode. And instead, what we're going to do is we are going to now, me and Frankie, talk about the impact that Avatar had on us, what we like uh, or maybe dislike about it, and why it's important. So, Frankie, I'm going to ask you first, and then I'll answer uh, after you go. What type of bender would you be? I actually don't know. I think about this a lot, and I am a fire sign, but... I am also very drawn to the moon, so I don't know. It's very difficult for me to put my finger on it. Maybe I'd be a waterbender, but I'm not entirely certain. That's fair. It is a, a difficult question to maybe answer uh, because people aren't often just one thing. For example, I know that personality-wise, I probably very frequently resemble a firebender or earthbender. I can be very, very stubborn and I can be very, very hot-headed. But personally, I'm drawn most to airbenders. Um, I like the way that they move. I like uh, how light they are on their feet, the uh, ability to like glide around and at you know certain points in their lore fly is great like i would absolutely love to do that so i would pick airbender if i like had a choice in the matter but i don't think you actually get that choice <laughs> where would you if you could go anywhere in the avatar the last airbender series uh any location where would you go i think i'd like to visit the spirit realm all right like there's just so much to see there and so many different colors and so much to learn not an answer that I was expecting. I was thinking just specifically of real 
I well, real world <laughs> locations, I guess, as as real as uh, a cartoon can be. But no, that's a great answer. Uh, I love it. You know, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff in the spirit world. You don't have your magic bending powers, though, for the most part. I probably don't have them anyway. Well, that's fair. I mean, you could also just be a non-bender. There are a lot of, of very uh, capable and competent non-benders in this series, right? Uh, Ty Lee being, I'm sure, everyone's first example because uh, she just she kicked butt all over the place with her um, chi point. I'm doing punching motions at the microphone. Unless I can somehow figure out how to make knitting and crocheting into a type of bending, then I, I don't think it would I would be a bender. See, now I'm picturing a crossover between uh, Tamara Pierce's Circle of Magic and Avatar, The Last Airbender, and I want it. <laughs> I want it very badly. Be nice to me and I'll write you the fic. <gasps> I'm always nice to you. You had to bribe me to do this episode just before doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't have to bribe you. You just... Anyway, if I could go anywhere in the Avatar The Last Airbender universe, I think that I would want to go to... It is a toss-up between the Earth Kingdom city of Omashu, where uh, Boomy is, because it's got all those really cool like slides that I know are for like parcel delivery and stuff, and you're not supposed to put people in them, but it seems really, really fun. But also Kiyoshi Island mm. is great. I love Kiyoshi Island because it has a lot of like water themes in it in the show, but it's technically part of Earth Kingdom territory. And it's very unique as far as Earth Kingdom design goes, because while a lot of Earth Kingdom design uh, follows like Han Chinese stylings. Uh, Kyoshi Island uses a style of building that's called a praying hands building that's uh, very Japanese in origin. And there's just a lot of cool stuff in there. Plus, they have a giant eel, and I feel like we could hang. I just think Kyoshi is really cool. Kyoshi is awesome. Kyoshi is probably the coolest avatar because she lived canonically to be like 230 years old once ripped an island off of the mainland to start her own place and killed a man named Chin the Conqueror, um, which has a very um, Chinese history feel to it because the first emperor of the Chin dynasty was named, um, you know, well, his name was first emperor of Chin, but like he was a, a, a warlord and a conqueror. Um, Kyoshi's great. Give me more Avatar Kyoshi. Please, please, and thank you. Actually, there's a book. There's an Avatar Kyoshi book that um, everyone should read. It's gay and it slaps. It's gay and it slaps, and that's really the only... If you need anything more than that about this book, then this is not the podcast for you. Okay, moving on to our next question. Who is your favorite character in the Avatar series? Hmm... Who is my favorite character? I don't know. I think it might be Katara. Okay. Um, why Katara? I think it's Katara because she grew up in a very small village that was destroyed by the Fire Nation. She had to teach herself everything that she knew. And... When she got the opportunity to train under a real waterbending master who told her, 
you shouldn't do this because you're a girl. You should go learn healing. She did go learn the healing because it is an important skill, but she also wanted to learn the combat. And she she wrecked his shop. Like, she was amazing. Uh, yeah, that episode is Siege of the North Part 1. It's uh, the first episode in the two-part finale of Season 1, which we'll definitely be talking about in much more detail next month. But I will I will praise that fight scene to the ends of the earth and back because upon like being told no by this like wise old venerable waterbending master like as we learn later one of the most powerful waterbenders on the planet katara's first instinct is i'm a fight him and she does really well i'm gonna heck him up and you know what she comes pretty close to hecking this old man up that's why i love her because she she's not easily cowed nope. and she she recognizes that certain skills are really important for her to have so she learns them whether or not it's the thing that she necessarily wanted to learn like she came to the north specifically to become a combat bender but when she's told no you have to learn healing she knows that she does have to because that's a very vital skill to have. Yeah. And to be able to be both a warrior who can also heal, like Alana the lioness. Yes. It's an incredible and valuable combination. Katara's a paladin. Yeah. I see she that. has a cause that she's dedicated to, uh, which is making sure that Aang masters the four elements and that the Fire Lord can be defeated. But, like, she's also, like... Katara's a tank. Yeah. Don't let anyone tell you that she's not, like, a tank, but she can also, she busts out then heals. Katara is uh, a paladin. My favorite character is, um, it is a it is a toss-up between Uncle Iroh and Zuko. And I, I think the reason why I have them so linked together is because of how tied together their storyline is and their character developments, or at least how tied Zuko's character development is to Iroh. Because by the time we meet Iroh in the show, he's pretty much gone through his character development. We get a little bit more insight into his backstory, especially in Tales of Ba Sing Se, but like... He's already kind of become the man that he is, and he doesn't change much throughout the show, just sort of coming to a little bit more peace with, like, the stuff that he's done and, and what he has to do. But Zuko has the best character development arc of that entire series, because he starts off in season one as our main antagonist. And uh, spoiler alert for, you know, a 15-year-old show, by the time we get to season three, he's Aang's firebending teacher and, like, sh- shoots lightning at his dad. And, like, he's just, he's he's great. Also, Dante Bosco is a phenomenal uh, voice actor. Also, just a great regular actor. Um, but, like, you know, just, oh, Zuko is, is so, so good. I was torn between Katara and Zuko because of his character development. Yeah. His redemption arc is one of the best in media. There are so many good headcanons about Zuko or, like, little fan explanations. Like, I'm not sure if you saw the one about, like, um, which side Zuko sleeps on, depending on how much he trusts people. 
I did not see that. Usually in the show, we see Zuko sleeping with his scar side down so that he can hear things better. But like when he's sleeping around like Aang and his friends, he's sleeping with his scar side up because he doesn't have to worry about himself around them. And it's just like, I don't know if that was done intentionally for, or if it was an accident. I can only imagine it was done intentionally because the show is like so good about um, like representing its characters. But like, oh, my heart, Zuko, just oh, teach me to shoot fire out of my hands and let me cook you dinner. My favorite Zuko moment is Zuko practicing what he's going to say to Aang's squad. Just, <sighs> hi, Zuko here. I love that scene very, very much for one, how beautifully awkward it is. Two, how much I can relate to it. But also, it was what my friend Chris Gravenstein used as his audition monologue for the New York Renaissance Fair. Um, and he got in with that which is absolutely delightful. That's cute. This is a bit of a very specific question because there are 61 options to pick from, but if you could pick a favorite episode or at least a favorite um, moment in the show, something that really stands out to you as great and powerful, what would you pick? I think I would pick Tales of Ba Sing Se. Yeah. Um, because we get little vignettes from all of our characters that give us little peeks into their personalities. For example, we see Toph's insecurity about how she looks. Because she's blind, she doesn't really have a care for those things. She can't see, so why would she care about it anyway? But when she and Katara go to the spa and they get all made up and the girls make her feel bad, Toph has no way of knowing, really, if their teasing has any truth to it. She can sense if someone's lying, but I don't know if that works really for teasing. Um, but when Katara tells her that she's beautiful, she trusts and believes her because yeah. Katara is being earnest with her. Yeah, Tales from... Avatar did filler episodes right. A lot of times in anime-style things, filler episodes tend to be bad and like i understand why you have to do them sometimes the anime catches up with the manga and you have to make filler so that like your your artist can get ahead of you again and you can start but like avatar didn't have to worry about that because they it was not based off of a pre-existing graphic novel it was its own original content that now has comics that expand its universe but regardless, you didn't always have episodes that advanced the main plot, like the Ember Island players or uh, like Tales from Ba Sing Se, which I would have to say is my favorite episode, too, because you get to see, like, Sokka in a haiku battle. Which is very funny. Right, which is, is delightful, and he just, like, lucks into it. Like, he literally gets kicked through the window by an ostrich horse. That's another thing that I love about Avatar The Last Airbender is the animal combos that they do and how shocked everyone is by just... The Earth King has a bear. You mean a platypus bear? No. A leopard bear? No, just a bear. This oh. place is weird. Yeah, right? Like, that's what's weird. Just a regular bear. I did um, like that moment. That was a very funny moment. But, um, and then, like, you got a vignette from Momo's perspective. And you mm. got one from Appa's perspective. Appa, who'd been kidnapped at this point and is separated from Aang. And we get to see, like, their struggles and tribulations. And then... To no one's shock, my favorite vignette from that is the one with Uncle Iroh, yeah, where I was like about to bring that up it's too. the anniversary of his son's death, and like he has this thing that he does every year where he gets incense and he gets tea and he like finds a quiet spot and he sings this little song and like I'm getting choked up just just describing this because it's so it's so heart wrenching because like you don't know what Iroh is doing. 
throughout this vignette. He's just going about his life, doing things, making other people smile and helping them. And like he helps like a little boy who's crying by like playing that song that he sings later on like a little guitar. And he helps a guy who tries to mug him. He first teaches him proper knife-holding stances and then convinces him to pursue his dream as a masseuse. Um, he helps little kids playing ball who've broken a window. And he tries to teach them about, like, you know, the better part of honor being, like, owning up to your mistakes. And then when it's a big burly man who looks like he's going to crush the kid's skulls with his fist, he's just like, but sometimes you just got to run. <laughs> and it's just, it's so good. And then it ends with just, like, this old, like, man just crying underneath of a tree because he misses his son. And it's just... Hits you in the dad feels. Oh, God. It hits me in the all of the feels, but yeah, it hits me in the dad feels. <laughs> um, oh. You okay? Do you need a moment? I do need a moment. Oh, my God. Okay. Um, why is Avatar important to you? Avatar is important to me kind of because it sets up Korra, who is slightly more important to me. I, I enjoy Avatar The Last Airbender. I think the storytelling is very strong. Uh, it gets stronger as the show goes on. It's not one of those where you need to like give it an entire season before it gets good. I think the first couple of episodes were not as strong as later, but I think that the story being told is important and I think that it makes it easier for other people to learn about cultures in a respectful and peaceful way. Yeah. Um, I think that Avatar The Last Airbender... So there's a reason why I picked Avatar The Last Airbender as the first cartoon that I was going to talk about in this... Um, when I talked about genocide and cartoons. It's the reason why it's the first chapter in my first book. And it's the reason why I wrote that book to begin with because it... Like, Avatar The Last Airbender, I guess I probably should have mentioned this closer to the top of the episode, but we're getting into it now, 20-some-odd minutes in. Avatar The Last Airbender starts off with the genocide of the Air Nomads. There's a reason why it's called The Last Airbender. Aang's the last of his culture. He's the last of his people. Because a hundred years ago, Fire Lord Sozin uh, brought, like, took in the power of this comet, uh, thereafter called Sozin's Comet, and used it to wipe out the four air nomad temples and, and everyone in it and that's that's like before the show even starts and then throughout it we have the southern waterbenders uh being the victims of another genocide as they're all captured and kept in these uh cages were without access to like any water until basically they all died and attempt to wipe out the bending of the southern water tribe the end of season one admiral zhao like literally kills the moon and cuts off the waterbenders from their access to their powers thus trying to like destroy their entire culture and then probably wipe out a good number of the waterbenders in his conquest of the north pole and at the end of the show spoilers for a 15 year old show um like they plan on using Sozin's Comet again, which comes back every hundred years to wipe out the Earth Kingdom. Like, there's a lot of just that in the show. But then it also gives a really good look into issues like imperialism 
and like uh like cultural issues uh dehumanization and like propaganda and just like all of these really important social issues that i study regularly but that like the average person might not be exposed to every day or might not know that they're being exposed to which is why i like this show and it's why i like to point out that it has these themes in it because if you can recognize those themes in fictional media you can recognize them in real life and avatar is a great show and a great tutorial level for recognizing those issues uh in real life um and to prevent me from just going on and on and on for the next 40 mm-hmm. minutes about this i'm going to ask uh our penultimate question which is when did you first watch avatar the last airbender did you watch it when it first came out back in 2005 oh, no. no um i first watched it when it was available on netflix i want to say in 2009 maybe 2008 because it was back in the way before times when I was dating uh, DJ Storm again. Uh, yeah, it was probably 2008 or nine because the show ended July 2008. So it was probably on Netflix sometime in, in one of those two years. Yeah. So Matt and I watched it together and then Cora started not too long after that. Not we tried to watch Cora, but um, we just fell off with it. Because it was somewhat difficult to follow. And it was also one of those issues where it was new content that I just wasn't emotionally ready for. Yeah. um, Korra came out April 14th, 2012. Uh, So it came out a few years after the show. But yeah. So I probably watched Avatar for the first time in 2011, 2010-11. Okay. Um, I watched it when it first came out. I started, like, I, I would follow it every single week. Um because like I was I was in high school back then so I like I had the time and emotional energy to like follow also Netflix wasn't really a thing back in 2005 that I can recall anyway so like this was my only way of consuming media so I I tuned in every single week and I watched it when it first came out and I watched Korra on TV when it first came out um and then when like they stopped airing it on TV and I had to go over to nick.com to watch it um but yeah, I, I I watched it from the beginning, and then of course we watched it not that long ago. Yeah. Um, we we binged our way through the two series, um, and uh, at least I'm going to have to be watching uh, book one again for next month's episode. You are of course welcome to join me for both that episode and that viewing. Um, but now our final question, which is, what lessons do you take away from Avatar: The Last Airbender? Oh, so many. Um, I think one of the main ones is that it's never too late to change. Like, it's never too late to divert your path. We get that for Aang. We get that for Zuko. Um, Aang starts off as a scared young boy. He's only 12 years old when he's told that so much rests on his shoulders. And he has to divert that initial path and take on the role of being the Avatar and being a hero. And then we also have Zuko, who thought that his path was to capture the Avatar and to bring honor to his family so his father would finally respect him and love him. But he has to divert that path. And it it's really important to know that even if you've done bad things in your life, that if you're willing to put in the work to redeem yourself, and if you are willing to help the people who are trying to do the right thing that 
there's always a chance to change. Yeah. Um, yeah. Aang was told that he was the Avatar when he was 12 years old. Now, they partially did this because of, like, the looming war with the Fire Nation that was already ramping up before the genocide happened. But, like, usually Avatars aren't told until they're 16 years old. Um, but, like, Aang had already mastered airbending by the time that he was 12 years old. He was a frighteningly powerful child who just wanted to make people laugh and, like, do goofy stuff. Like, the, the like, thing that we see Aang do, like, most often to just get a laugh is just, like, pick up these beads and just, like, make them spin in a circle in his hand and make a goofy face. And it's just, like, that's all he wanted. He just wanted to, like, have fun and make people laugh. And he had to, like, go to war and like, I have a lot of feelings about the child soldier trope in media, but we don't need yeah. to. We don't need to get into that there. Um, I think some of the most important takeaways that I have uh, from the show is that um, sometimes you you do need to fight to stand up for your beliefs, but it's not always the only way to do it. Like Ang was very much Airbenders are pacifists. That's their thing, and like he struggles with that. With that, like diverting and like dancing around things and that pacifist nature when he has to learn uh earth bending later but like when push comes to shove and when everyone tells him you have to kill the fire lord ang finds a way to subdue his opponent uh and takes away his fire bending and he does this without killing him um and it's it's a really great show of like ang's strength of character and his willingness to like make things more difficult for himself to stand by uh his ideals um i really like how it like it shows a, a diverse cast of characters like all working together like ang has a very particular personality and Sokka is like a sarcastic non-bender who like really struggles with imposter syndrome a lot throughout this show to speak to your point about how it's important to stand up for yourself and there's more than one way to do so, I think I think that the diversity that you're talking about shows itself there as well because each of our main characters have different ways to go about standing up for themselves and different values that they feel are important to stand up for as well. Yeah, and the ways that they stand up for themselves change throughout this. Like, when the show first starts first starts off katara like tries to be very like diplomatic and political except for when she's shouting at her brother for being sexist but like at one point in the show she just like ices two dudes to a wall and like basically robs them to get information that she needs um and like ang learns to like he has to learn this to like learn earthbending he learns to like stand like face his problems head on and not try and avoid them um, and it's like a very, it's a very, very cool scene because there's a giant saber-toothed moose lion and Sokka almost dies. <laughs> um, and it's like really great stuff. And Toph, Toph doesn't need to change ever. Toph is perfect and can do no wrong. And she never, ever changes as a human being, even all the way through Legend of Korra. But like, she is immovable and unchangeable and just so, so cool. I love Toph. Um... But yeah, there are, there are so many, so many great lessons to be learned in this show, and each person is going to take something different away uh, from it, and I could talk about it for um, ever, and I am going to talk about it for three more episodes, but uh, those are all of the questions that I have for this little part of the show. Is there anything else that you want to say about Avatar The Last Airbender before we transition to an outro? 
I do want to say that I absolutely hated Katara and Aang together. I get that. Katara got increasingly angry throughout the series, and I just felt they were a horrible match, and Aang was constantly, like, underfoot, telling her her how he felt about her. And she kept trying to tell him, like, I am not about this. And then they end up together, and I don't know. Aang was very much, like, he learned how to stand firm in front of his problems and to not necessarily, like, be a pacifist and everything, but he was very much a like jesus archetype turn the other cheek like you know you don't need to like sink to like the level of violence to like defeat your your enemies and whatnot but like nah man sometimes you gotta like find the dude who kidnapped your mom and you gotta murder him and like sometimes you just have to like let yourself be angry and let yourself feel those emotions and like yeah no that ship um, it was the classic one. It was always the one that they're going to push for. But like, I love, I love Katara and Zuko. Yep, Zutara all um, the way. Yep. Um, I also ship Sokka and Toph. I think that that's uh, adorable, and I think like I they see that as well. they clearly show her crush on Sokka like at one mm-hmm. or two points in the series, and it's great. And like him and him and Suki is like lovely and delightful. But like, nah, nah, give me Sokka and Toph. Um, or Suki and Toph. Or Sokka and Suki and Toph. I'm fine with that. As a triad or as a V? Um, I feel like it could work as a triad. I think it could work as a triad. Too. Yeah. But yeah, um, for more on our problematic ships, uh, join us next month. No, but um, uh, thank you for joining us for this episode. This wraps up our first episode in this arc on genocide in cartoons. Next month, we'll be talking about book one, Water. Uh, like I said, this new arc should take about four episodes. So if this isn't your jelly or your jam, check back in in April when we'll be starting season two of Genistory. We agreed to do this. Genistory is a part of the That's Not Canon podcasting network. You can find us at thatsnotcanon.genistory.com. Um, as I've been doing for the past two months, I'd like to shout out a That's Not Canon podcast. Uh, this is a new one. Shout out to 20-Minute History with David A. Bradbury, uh, described as engaging histories of unfamiliar and misunderstood people, places, events, and concepts, always shorter than 20 minutes. So if you don't want to spend a lot of time listening to a podcast, if you just want something quick to listen to on your drive to work, definitely check this out. I'm very excited to give it a listen. I love me some history podcasts, uh, as you may or may not have been able to tell. Uh, Frankie, why don't you take this opportunity to shout out your wonderful projects and say where people can find you? Yeah, sure. Uh, I am a member of the Certain Point of View Network. No rivalry here. I have so many podcasts, it's difficult to keep track, but my main ones are Reignite, a Mass Effect deep dive podcast that John is often a guest on. He is actually our most frequent guest at this time until Nelson Lugo kills him in his sleep. Nelson, I'll fight you. (laughs) I love you, Nelson. I also do a podcast called The Circle of Friendship, which is about the Circle of Magic books written by Tamara Pierce. I have a podcast on hiatus called The Rob Thomas, No, Not That One, Robcast, which is about the creative works of Rob Thomas. And I know what you're thinking. It's definitely not that one. John and I have started a new podcast over on this Certain Point of View network called Certain Point of Yule, where we watch Christmas movies so you don't have to. You can check that out. It's a limited run for December and some of January. 
Um, what else do I have to talk about? Oh, and also, I am on the cast of Archives of the Dragon, where we play Changeling the Dreaming. We just finished season one, so you can find all of that up on YouTube, where you can watch me play a punk rock selkie, and also John guested on that as well. Uh, yeah, I guess I'm also technically a part of the Certain Point of View Network, at least for the month of December. Um, so that's fun, being part of two podcasting networks. Um, Frankie's podcasts are all amazing and wonderful. I listen to them regularly, and not just because uh, she's my wife, because they are phenomenal content with great hosts, with wonderful banter. Um, but I could talk about how much my wife is amazing for a whole podcast episode, and instead of doing that, uh, if you like what you heard here, Follow me on social media at Pod on Twitter, uh, facebook.com backslash Pod, or send me an email at genistorypod at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or topics that you'd like to hear about. You can also find me on TikTok as at the History Wizard. so join the 98 or so thousand people who listen to me shout about history stuff and politics and occasionally just make dumb puns. If you are looking for just more of me in your life, you can find me on Twitter at Prof John Strange or on Facebook at John Lestrange colon historian. I actually haven't really used most of those, either of those social medias in a bit because TikTok takes all of my time. So ignore that and really just find me on TikTok. I'd like to hit 100K ASAP. Thanks. Uh, if you're looking for something to read during this quarantine, you can find both of my books, Representations of Genocide in Cartoons, which features a lot of information on Avatar The Last Airbender, and Representations of Genocide in Video Games, which features a lot of information about the Mass Effect video games on Amazon. They're available in paper book and ebook. Please give those a rate and review while you're at it. Speaking of ratings, Genistory has a new one. Five stars. That's it. <laughs> they didn't say anything. People just go over there and they click five stars, and I appreciate that. But give me some words so I can read them on here and fill up space and also shout out how much I love you. Um... Please rate, review, and subscribe to Genistory on your favorite podcatcher if you can. It helps us get seen so that other people can find us. Also, just tell a friend. Word of mouth is the most effective advertising there is. It... Thank you to Kevin McLeod over at Incompetech for our show music. Uh, thank you to the app Hatchful and to my amazing wife for designing and then editing that logo. Uh, I'm John, and this has been Genistory. We agreed to do this. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.